What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. I'm sitting here at 22 Fourth Street on the fifth floor at Clover Health. Uh, I have the pleasure of talking with Jason Alderman, who is the Chief Communications Officer of Clover Health. Welcome, Jason. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for hosting me and making time to do this. It's a Monday morning, so that's always a tough time to get started. But um, off to Health 2.0 after this. I know you had said you would love to be there, but uh, you're right in the middle of uh, enrollment season. It's so true. I, I had the best of intentions, but this is this is sort of like the Christmas season for, those of, for companies like Clover that sell Medicare Advantage plans. The annual enrollment period, which is like open season for those who have employer-based health care, it, it kicks off on October 15th. So we're very keyed up towards that. Well, that's a good way to put it. And I worked at Fidelity Investments for nine years, so we had a benefits arm, and so I remember what it was like to get ready for that. So um, why don't we start there, and I'll jump back to you in a second, just because I like to keep the flow going. So you are the, the communications officer, the head of communications here. Um, the company is a San Francisco-based healthcare startup whose goal is to use data analysis and preventative care to improve health insurance for seniors and give customers who use private versions of Medicare a less expensive option. I know that rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> talk a little bit about that. I know you just mentioned the open enrollment, but like in, in English, you know, talk a little bit about what the words mean sure. and what you guys do. Sure. So Medicare Advantage is a private insurance-run Medicare option. So I think most people are familiar with, with traditional Medicare, where it it's acts the government acts as an insurer, and it and it pays for a very prescribed amount of things, certain things it doesn't cover, and it covers up to eighty percent of your costs. Medicare Advantage is sort of an innovative option that allows people to take a private insurance plan that looks a lot, frankly, like what an employer provided health plan looks like. Covers a lot more than Medicare, and traditionally costs less, and and also has a an out of pocket cap. So, for instance, let's say you have something awful happens to you, you're on traditional Medicare, 20% of that cost you're on the hook for. If you spend $100,000 in a hospital, which is not a crazy thing to do these days, unfortunately, you're going you're on the hook for $20,000. With private insurance, both at employer-based and with a Medicare Advantage plan, there's some sort of cap on it. So, typically at a Clover plan is capped around $6,000. It varies from place to place. Uh, Clover plans also include things that Medicare, traditional Medicare, doesn't. Hearing aids, um, vision tests and glasses, and dental coverage. None of that's covered. Most people don't realize that. None of that's covered by traditional Medicare. So with a Medicare Advantage plan, you get something that looks a lot like an employer-provided plan at usually the same or less cost, and you get more benefits. Well, you guys are doing some amazing things for society, and I think now more than ever it's uh, needed uh, and with an aging population, uh, a good place to be. I do have an interesting question, and then I will get back to your background because that's equally um, diverse. But you're in three different cities, not shocking the states that you've picked. San Francisco certainly makes sense for one, but San Antonio, which is an interesting choice for Texas, right, with it being one of the one big four. Uh, and then Jersey City in New Jersey. How did you guys end up in those three uh, particular cities? Well, uh, Jersey City is sort of speaks to our original history as a company. So our our CEO uh, Vivek Garapali, um founded a or. or ran a chain of hospitals in New Jersey. And so when he was looking at creating Clover, it was a natural place to go because a key thing that you want when you have an insurance plan is to have a, a good network of providers and hospitals. And so uh, 
we had that already in spades in New Jersey because uh, Vivek ran these hospitals. So that was an outgrowth there. San Antonio was a good place for us to go for a couple of reasons. One, it's a good market to sell Medicare Advantage plans in, but also it has a very strong uh, tech uh, community. And so it was a place that we could go to and sort of meet double our needs. We could, we could both sell our plans there and hire people there. And so we're continuing to expand in San Antonio as an employer. And then San Francisco, because so much of what we do actually is based on our really unique algorithms and AI models, we needed the engineering talent that you can really only get in, in San Francisco. And that's the one piece there that I didn't mention when I was sort of describing what our Medicare Advantage plans are. We're not just a traditional insurer. We, we bring this really added value that I think no one else is able to do right now, which is to look at all of our members, look at what's driving their, their health, what's helping improve their health, and then figure out how we can intervene earlier. Because for everybody, nobody nobody wants to be forced, forced to deal with the healthcare system once they're sick, once they're in a hospital. So much better to have an early intervention, to have a proactive outreach, to figure out how to head off whatever major illnesses you might have before they become so significant. And so what our models do uh, is they can figure out when who needs help and how to intervene earlier. So, for instance, we have our AI models here, developed in part by Andrew Toy, who's our CTO, can predict with 85% accuracy if you're going to be going into the hospital in the next month. So we can figure out weeks in advance that you might be headed down, you might be spiraling down to a place where you need to go in the hospital. We can reach out earlier, send a nurse practitioner, get you a doctor, go to have a health, um, a home health care visit, whatever that needs to be in the hopes of trying to stop you from having to go in the hospital. So much better for the member, better for, you know, nobody wants to go in the hospital. It's it's one of the most unpleasant experiences you can have. So if we can try to figure out how to stop you from going in the hospital, you're going to have you're going to be happier as a patient and it's it it's better for everybody else. It's cheaper to not go in the hospital. Um, it it usually lengthens life. So this is the kind of thing that Clover can do that other health insurers don't know how to do. So if I can ask a dumb question, it seems like such an obvious thing. Like, why wouldn't more companies make an effort? I, obviously, I know that not everyone probably has the CTO that you have and the founder that you have. But you know, why wouldn't companies be making more strides to do that? A lot of a lot of health insurers pay lip service to it. You know, you'll see no shortage of commercials that that paint a warm and fuzzy picture about that. But the reality is, they don't usually have much to do on the intervention side. So, for instance, if you're a major insurer, you don't really employ any healthcare providers. You're just, you just pay the bills. You just write the checks and negotiate rates. Clover actually have, we have an army of nurse practitioners that work for Clover. So we'll send them out and check on our members to see if there's something wrong. So that we're a really interesting hybrid in that model. And and the other thing is, we it was really baked into our DNA to, to, to have our needs aligned. So what we want to do, how we're successful as a company, how we make money as a company, is by keeping our members as happy and healthy and as long-lived as possible. Most other insurers don't have that same kind of alignment. And, and I think we have the luxury of, to be able to do that because we're a startup, because you know, we weren't born 50 years ago, and we, we really were, you know, we were born from scratch just a few years ago. And, and with this really strong mission to ensure that people live their healthiest, happiest lives. And so that was that was really baked into how we started to build the company. For, you know, if you're an insurer with 200,000 employees and, and um, you insure 10 million people, it's very hard to, to turn that Titanic around in terms of the mindset, in terms of how you interact with your members. But we're small, we're lithe, we're able to really 
change on a dime and to innovate and create as we go. And that's that's really helped us create a different kind of health tech company. Well, I love it. I love where you guys are going and um, wish you like the most success in that regard. As promised, I do want to go back to you because I get to interview a lot of interesting people and a lot of them do have some have very traditional paths, some have non-traditional paths. And while your comms journey has been fairly straightforward, you did start in politics, if I'm not mistaken. And then you spent time at PG&E, one of the largest uh, power companies probably in the country, uh, Visa, Knowledge Universe, and then most recently DraftKings. Like, while those are certainly well-known brands, so I can see that uh, trajectory, it does feel like an interesting path. How did, uh, how did you get there? Um, now you're making me feel like I've, you know, that I've zigged in when I should have I like zagged it, actually. there. I feel like it's a feel bad. I feel like it's actually a great trajectory. <laughs> um, I, I, for me, you know, at this point in my career, I, I think I have more to learn, less in communications, but in new industries. Um, not to say that there's still not things for me to, there are mountains to climb on the communications front. But for instance, I feel like I know communications really well. I, I don't know healthcare. I'm still, I'm still really learning. I'm leaning on lots of folks here at Clover about healthcare, about Medicare Advantage, all new to me. That is what really puts a spring in my step, um, is to learn about a new industry and to try to think about how I, can, how I can overlay what I do know about communications and my past and other companies in a whole new industry. That, I think that's fascinating. Um, I, I'm, I love... I love learning about new industries. I love, I'm the kind of guy who wants to stop at a factory tour whenever, you know, I'm on a road trip with my family. I always want to see a factory tour, whether they're making like shoelaces or jelly beans. I think it's fascinating how things get made and how companies run and how organizations operate. So for me to be able to dive deep into new industries and, and really get a handle on them, and it's absolutely fascinating. And that, that really feeds my thirst for continuing to learn. Well, so good segue to this next question is someone that has spent time in communications across some very diverse industries, um, many regulated, but in different regards, which is interesting. Uh, what do you see today that's going well? And maybe what do you see that you think needs to change in the world of communications? I think the um, I, I think communications folks are are more and more becoming extensions of a marketing operation. And I think that's a mistake. Um, marketers play an enormously important function, CMOs in particular, some of my favorite people. But, um, but they're very different disciplines. And I think as, as communications, it, it, for those organizations that think of uh, communications as just an outgrowth of it, an extension of it, a way to sell more things, a way to, to distribute and disseminate marketing messages, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I think com what communications can do in a distinct way is to really help define the company's corporate reputation. Um, and and that I think that's very different than the brand. And I, I know this this brand versus corporate reputation concept has sort of kicked around the industry for a while. But I, I think more and more the communications folks are getting sucked into the vortex of marketing. And I think I think that's a mistake. I think communicators need to be their own distinct function. I think they need to stand alone and strong in an organization. I think they need to have a good, healthy give and take with marketers who, who have different agendas, different goals. Um, and so that, 
that worries me. I, I worry that um, if communications is just seen as the press release arm of a marketing department, that the organization is missing out on so much more that, that communications can do to shape that reputation for everybody, from st- all forms of stakeholders, from customers to you know, the most important, to, to investors, to government regulators, you name it. Uh, and and if, if communications is just, is just parroting the marketing line and, and, and just recycling it as a fake pablum for, a, for a, a news media audience, then the organization loses, consumers lose because they're not getting anything inf- interesting, compelling. It, 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 only, it only furthers the degradation of the news media and, the, and, and how the news media now more than ever is just, is just recycling the content that's given to them by an organization. So that worries me. Well, I like that. Um, so what about things that are going well? Are you feeling like there are new, uh, I don't know, techniques or tools or new platforms or maybe greater collaboration given what you're seeing out there? I, I do think that because of the the overall uh, weakening of the news media landscape, you know, as, it, as it's been shattered into a thousand shards of, of all sorts of different mediums from podcasts to, um, you know, traditional mainline news sources. I I think in some ways communicators have a greater responsibility than they ever did. Um, We, you know, the the number of filters between between an organization, a communicator, and the end audience has really reduced now. Um, You know, it it used to be that the news media would um, really act as a BS meter uh, and would would reject a lot of the foolishness that communicators would spit out. That happens a lot less now. And, and there, there are many times, not at Clover, but at other, other organizations I've been to where we have been, we've been peddling something that frankly is, you know, it's not very newsworthy. And when it gets picked up, I'm excited for, I'm excited for my organization and I also lament the state of affairs that, that whatever half-baked thing we were peddling that actually got picked up that probably five years ago, ten years ago wouldn't have gotten picked up. And so I, I think this is, I don't say this in a, in a negative way, but I think what it means is I think we as communicators have a greater responsibility now. I think, we, I think we need to be more mindful of the fact that we have, we've moved closer to the end consumer um, in terms of our, in where we are in the sort of information food chain. There's a lot less time for digesting and for rejecting. And so I think what we have to be more responsible uh, in, with what we put out there. And in the news media's rush to get things out right away, to tweet out whatever they get, there's just there's there's very little there's very little vetting, and so I think it gives us more responsibility, more power in many ways to use to use this to use this proverbial microphone that we've been given with responsibility. Um, that can be really exciting. That that actually you know for 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 communicators who really care about what they do, that actually is a wonderful opportunity and responsibility. We just have to use it with um, we have to use it wisely. Well, on a related note, I was going back through your Twitter stream. Speaking of Twitter, and uh, you posted something that made me chuckle uh, on September seventh, and it said, "My 2018 campaign platform is based solely on the pledge to unfollow people who describe themselves as storytellers." And I do things like this occasionally with LinkedIn. You know, when people have um, all caps or you know certain things in their title. But tell me a little bit about what inspired you to to say this, because I think comms is about storytelling, right? But I think if you have to say that you're an influencer, you have to say that you're a storyteller, maybe uh, maybe you're trying a little bit too hard. I think you've, Aaron, you've hit it right on the head. Um, you know, people who take themselves too seriously also annoy me a little bit. Uh, and so uh, you can be a great storyteller, but if you say you're a great storyteller, it, it 
makes me question whether, in fact, you're a pretty good storyteller. So I, I find people who put storyteller in their in their profiles on social media, it just it just pushes my buttons. And this is one of you know I I, I have uh, self appointed my uh, myself uh, to to look out for foolishness that communicators do. Um, one of my other pet peeves is the line that organizations, often government spokespeople, but corporate spokespeople do this too, the out of an abundance of caution, and then insert line here. So out of an abundance of caution, we have decided to stop you know, selling exploding whoopie pies. What what abundance of caution is that? It's just a bad idea. You should just say we're sorry that our whoopie pies exploded on you. We didn't mean to have our whoopie pies explode. This was awful. We really regret it. We're stopping selling the whoopie pies. So people who use phrases like that drive me nuts when I see it. For a while, I even had a Google search for out an abundance of caution. I would I would you know I would call out the people who use that quote. That turns out that like twelve people a day in different stories use it, and I got overwhelmed quickly. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. We, you know, we, we have to recognize who we are. We're, we're communications folks. Um, we're not inventing the cure for cancer. We, we, need to, we need to put ourselves in the proper perspective. We need to have respect for ourselves. But if we, if we treat ourselves like we are some sort of, um, you know, some sort of holy men, then, uh, then I think we're really losing the big picture. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Uh, this is a place where I like to shift a little bit more to you, and I like to ask these same three questions to all the guests that I have. So the first one is tell us something about yourself that people don't know. Something about myself that people don't know. Um, it, it is just between us, right, Aaron? That's right. No okay. one's listening. Okay, good. Um, so I was a failed child actor. Um, uh, I I, uh, I grew up in Chicago in the 80s when there was a nice – when sort of – the entertainment industry discovered Chicago for the first time, starting with like the Blues Brothers movies and all the John Hughes movies from the 80s. And so I had small parts in a few movies that shot in Chicago. And I thought it was really fun and didn't require a, a, enough work, a lot of work. And for a teenager, it was I got out of school. So I thought it was ter- this was like the best thing ever. Um, and then I realized it was actually really, really hard that, you know, for every job that you got, you had to audition 10 times. And it's pretty much, you know, when you go get an audition and the nine times at least out of ten that you get turned down, it's a fairly straightforward rejection of you. Uh, it's not It's not like, oh, you didn't have enough experience, you know, in media relations. No, Jason, we just didn't think you were right for this. And so my, my frail teen ego could handle it no more. And so I, I dropped out. Um, but uh, it did teach me a little bit about communicating. It taught me a little bit about humility, and it gave me an enormous amount of respect for the actors who, in fact, can put themselves out there and try to make a career out of it. Yeah, I noticed uh, as a sidebar, you are a Cubs fan. So maybe a Cub- <laughs> Cubs-Red Sox World Series this year? It's so fun. I actually think, uh, you know, I think that dream is really a possibility. The Red Sox are scary good, um, like shockingly awful, you know, I want to have drug tests every five minutes. Great, um, but the Cubs are looking. They're looking strong. I think we have the ability to uh, have an even stronger September. So I would be so excited. I'm not sure I could afford those World Series tickets because that would be the World Series of the century. Um, but man, that would be great. Yeah. Well, as a Red Sox fan, I'm looking forward to it. Especially, I have an affinity for the Cubs. We were sort of the uh, downtrodden for a long time, and. 
a lot of crossover right between people like uh, Theo Epstein and John Lester and others. So. I, I do feel I feel like the the Cubs are you know are are the Adams rib to um, the current Red Sox organization. They you know and 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 a real testament to the Red Sox organization that when they lost a lot of the talent that built what they have. They kept on rolling. Um, I'm not quite as confident that if the Cubs lost Theo, they would continue to keep on rolling. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think the Cubs and Red Sox fans have a lot of, especially it doesn't hurt that we're in different leagues, so we don't play each other very often. There, You can have that sort of respect and love for the other team, the old beautiful ballpark, the storied traditions, the, you know, the history of losing and then being really good again. So uh, if the Cubs can't win the World Series, I'd like it to be the Red Sox. Well, I appreciate that and vice versa. So. We'll have to uh, keep tabs on that and keep in touch. Um, second question I like to ask is, you know, smart people like yourself, are there any books that you've either read or listened to over the last year or two that inspired you that you'd like to share with the audience? The, the Bob Woodward, Woodward Burke Fear getting an enormous amount of attention. And if you haven't read Bob's books before, and I haven't read Fear yet, he has a really interesting style of, of sort of putting you in the room and putting you as it's sort of first person with the figure in the room. So if it's about John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, it's sort of written from John Kelly's perspective, at least for that segment of the book. It's a really interesting style. And he pioneered this style with Carl Bernstein back in the original Watergate books that he wrote. So that's a long way of saying, be, given the enormous parallels that people have talked about between Watergate and the current troubles in Washington, I, I went back and reread both Woodward and Bernstein books about Watergate, All the President's Men, which was made into a movie, but also The Final Days, which was sort of a follow-up book to that, which really should both be read together. It's in the same very readable style that Woodward and Bernstein put together, um, and it really gives you such an interesting insight into the fall of a president. And I think to give, you know, while while the whole scene in Washington and the Russian investigation is far from played out and we don't know how it will go, I think it gives you such context to, to really be steeped in what happened in Watergate. And so I would recommend folks who follow politics as closely as I have, if you haven't read the original Woodward and Bernstein books, go back. It's an easy read. It's great history. And you will be shocked by the amount of parallels between the two. Well, I just downloaded Fear onto Audible, so I'm going to probably start with that, and then maybe I'll backtrack to the I think, others. I think it's a, actually that could be a really that's a great way to do it. So get the current, understand what's going on now, the latest greatest, and then go back and get that added context and that history. Um, and in that same genre, I think you'll really enjoy it. Well, I appreciate the recommendation. Um, the last one, and this is just a fun one, but I like to find out sort of how people think about this. So imagine you're stranded on a deserted island. Uh, you can only take one album with you. Which album would that be, and why would you choose it? So I, I have, I have strong feelings on this, Aaron. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to choose the the White Album, or it, properly known as the Beatles, but everybody calls it the White Album. It was, uh, it's a two disc album. Um, they had so much material, they wanted to release it uh, as a two disc album, which had never been done before. There was never two disc albums until um, until the Beatles did it. Um, and while while there. Well, uh, Revolution Number no. 9 is on that album, which is the Beatles' worst song in uh, ever done. There's so much great material on there. You can really hear their creativity, and you hear things from George and Ringo, who often had to fight for space on the album because they were competing with a Lennon-McCartney writing juggernaut. But with the double album, there was more of their material on there. It was just—it's it, really a terrific—it's a terrific album. And, and in today's world of streaming and, and Spotifying and listening to songs and shuffling— it's worth it to go and listen to that album in its entirety from start to finish. 
great album. Let me say, um, I also would like to, if, if there was another, so if there were two crates floating in the ocean with me to this, and I saw one that said marked with the White Album, I would rescue that. If there was another one marked the Eagles' greatest hits, I would seek to drown it um, and crush it and ensure that nobody else could hear that again. There was just, a, just uh, I think it was on Spin, announced a couple of weeks ago that the Eagles' greatest hits is now the largest selling album of all time, surpassing Thriller, Michael Jackson's enormous hit from 83 and 84. And I just want to really be clear here, Aaron, the Eagles are perhaps the worst band in the history of the world. They have um, incredible sales that just won't die. They're like the zombie band that won't stop churning out hits. They went on reunion tour after reunion tour, and I think it speaks very poorly for us as a society that this is that this album continues to do so well. And so, I, I, as a public service, I'd like you to go. I'd like listeners to go and see if they have. Hotel California, which is a, which is like now the number three best-selling album of all time, or the Eagles' greatest hits. Find it. Do you have it? Crush it. Is it on your phone? Delete it. This is this is something that needs to be done because because at some point when civilization is over and and the aliens are down here and they're rummaging through the wreckage of our civilization and they find on your phone they find that you had Hotel California and the Eagles' greatest hits. It, it, you know, is that how we want to be remembered? Well, I love the passion. Fortunately, I do not have that album <laughs> or that on my phone. Uh, I actually, I sort of have a rotating three anytime someone asks me, me about my album. So Beatles' White Album is one of those. So, is that right? Yes. I knew I And I've had you. it actually, you get a surprisingly few set of repeats for this. The Beatles' White Album, I think, has been chosen two or three other uh, times. Now, oh, now I'm feeling uncreative. No, I don't think you should because I, one, for all the reasons you mentioned, it's a double album. It is one of the most creative albums. I mean, you talk about diversity, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's unbelievable. So I, I applaud it, and I applaud your equal disdain for <laughs> the Eagles. Wait, now I want to have now. All right, can I? I I'm I'm going to take off the white album because now I don't feel original. Well, just do enough. your backup. That's okay. All right. So how about has Carol King's Tapestry been mentioned before? I don't believe so. Oh, that that will blow you away. Uh, there too needs to be listened to its entirety. Um, Carol King, a, a wonderful writer. So she was really known as a writer. She you know she cranked out tons of hits for mostly male artists until she decided to start recording her own stuff and Tapestry really is her her her, her top album it's just the best thing so so go listen to go listen to Tapestry if you haven't heard that in a long time you'll you'll recognize a bunch of radio hits from it but even the even just the the deeper tracks are just fabulous and it really does it weaves together nicely and really holds together as an album well, one of the highest ranked uh, albums, like as a compilation of all times by Rolling Stone. So good choice. Wow. I didn't. All right. Now I feel good about my choice. And, and so I think maybe it's a two step move here. Download Tapestry, delete Eagles. That's a good recommendation. <laughs> and on that note, we will wrap up. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What's to Know podcast show. And I've had the pleasure, and this has truly been a pleasure, of spending the last 25 minutes with Jason Alderman, who's the Chief Communications Officer at Clover Health. Thank you, Jason. Aaron, thank you so much. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.